Welcome to the DSTL podcast, a podcast that goes behind the scenes at the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory to speak to the scientists, analysts, engineers and support staff who make up the diverse workforce, asking who they are and what they do. My name is Tom and this is the DSTL podcast. Okay, first of all, I just want to say thank you for taking the time out to be interviewed or grilled. For the, uh, for the podcast. Um, if we could start, you could tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do at DSTL. So I'm currently a staff officer in the Cyber and Information Systems Division. Um, I'm Rory Miles. It's kind of a difficult role to actually have a kind of what I do day to day. I've only been in role about three weeks now, um, but it pretty much is insanely varied. It goes from the fact that I own the kind of communications um, newsletter which we send out to stakeholders and um, across the division which is a celebration of all of the work that we do uh, which has been really cool to take on and consider how we can better communicate and actually pick out um, we've done this really cool science how do we explain it to people that don't have a technical background uh, and I'm also doing kind of wider thinking about how we can get better at a project level of reporting that to other people um, maybe slightly making my life easier as well um, and I generally just ensure that the division had so uh, Paul Keeley, who sits in charge of the 550 people in um, CAS, can on a day-to-day -day basis that he's supported, he knows what he needs to know. Just for people who don't know what CIS is, what, what does that stand for? So it stands for Cyber and Information Systems Division. Um, so how did you get into this role? Where, where did you come from? How did you start at DSTL, really? So it's a pretty long and varied stories in my, story in my kind of six years since I graduated. Um, so I did biomedical science at university and was very interested in microbiology and infectious disease, um, how people actually kind of react to, to getting infected with bacteria and viruses. And then also that stemmed into thinking about how can we actually diagnose that from a patient sample. So I registered to work in the National Health Service as a biomedical scientist. So they're the group of professionals who work every day to actually look at blood samples and say that's what the patient's got. And it's reliant on, I think it's 70% of all diagnoses in a hospital rely on that labo uh, laboratory service. Although for me, I kind of felt slightly out of the almost the loop of the fact that although I was doing it, I wanted to know how does it work? How can we make it better? So I moved into a research role at Public Health England, so just across the fence. So I've not moved terribly far. And uh, that was looking primarily at more dangerous pathogens, so the really rare ones that you get often from traveling abroad and thinking how can we use cutting edge technology to actually um, diagnose those in patients um, and ones which we struggled to do in the past, how do we improve that and get it working? which ended up me getting involved in some really cool projects. So one of the cool, well, most interesting and exciting things I did was actually to deploy to Sierra Leone during the Ebola outbreak. And, and what did you do while you were there? What was your role? What? So I think I was called a laboratory technician, which is not that exciting. Uh, but the role was mainly taking the blood samples that the medics who were wearing massive suits um, over the red line, which we call it, in, in the infectious zone with the patients um, in an Ebola tr uh, treatment centre. So these were kind of tent cities which were established where there were minimal healthcare facilities and to specifically pro provide that response. And our role was to take those blood samples and do the actual test for, um, for Ebola and to say, does the patient have it, do they not? Which is actually really important because uh, if we were to misdiagnose a patient and say they don't have Ebola, then they could get removed from the kind of 
highly toxic area um, and potentially infect other people. So it was right. actually yeah. an integral part of the entire system that we were there doing that. Wow, yeah. I mean, I, I, I cast my mind back to when the Ebola um, outbreak crisis was actually at the forefront of the kind of main news. And I do remember seeing the, the news reports, you know, as, as you described in these tent cities. Um, it must have been quite exciting. Obviously not terribly exciting for the people who were in the midst of the outbreak, but for you having, you know, this kind of really important role going there to help sort of diagnose people. Um, I mean, your friends must have been quite impressed. Uh, did, were you allowed to tell them that that's what you were doing? I was allowed to tell parts. So it was always a, a case of um, how much can we say before you go and, and yeah. you're limited in how much you're a, actually allowed to tell family. But um, I at least kind of, I'm not sure anyone was impressed as opposed to terrified, but I'd put myself in that situation. Oh, where yeah. I was me, microbiologist, being like, it's fine. It's like, I understand the, the bug. And you, and you work in it in, in big um, kind of flexible cabinets. It's all contained. And actually, it's not going to jump out of it if you stick to your safety principles when it's all fine. Mm. Um, so, but it's because I studied at a university and further in my career, so I had that understanding. For most people, they hear Ebola and they just panic and wonder yeah. why I'm going to do it. Well, yeah, that, that's a very interesting story. Um, could you talk a little bit about how your microbiology background kind of helped you get into a job at DSTL? After kind of working in the research side for a few years and moving to a secondment to uh, Liverpool School of, Tropi School of Tropical Medicine, um, I started doing a project um, and actually project managing a deployment of a lab looking at salmonella typhi. So that's a um, bug which causes typhoid fever. It's a huge case of gastroenteritis, um, not so pleasant for people, hugely widespread in Africa. And I got really interested in actually the management side and not being in the lab doing a lot of plating because in reality that was about well, I was doing kind of our agar plates, which you've probably seen on TV with the, the lawn of bacteria. I was doing over a thousand of those a day and I went... Oh, is that the, the little kind of plastic circular thing where they do the yeah. swab kind of thing and you see it in films and on the news and that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah which is always the one which you see and, and actually is still so commonplace in, in a lot of the work that we do on that side because the only way of telling if, if the bacteria is actually going to be able to infect someone is knowing that it can grow, which is why you put it on the... Oh, right. And, and I, to be honest, I didn't know that. Um, so I've, I've learned something um, there. Thank well, you. On, on, a, <laughs> on an environmental side, which is very because because on a clinical side, you're not you aren't expecting any kind of bacteria in your blood. If there's bacteria in there because it's a sterile solution, then you know it's going to be fine. Environmental because we've got millions, probably more bacteria surrounding us. That's a lot more challenging and, and a lot more kind of less well understood and focused on. But that kind of put me in a situation where when I don't really want to be in the lab anymore. Actually, I'm really interested in project management, and I had a few friends who worked there anywhere who said, "Well, why don't you consider being a project manager at DSTL?" Uh, which led me to then interviewing for the post and starting here about well, just under two years ago in a project management role, actually managing microbiology and clinical diagnostics projects. So although it wasn't on the technical side, it fitted really well into my understanding, which really helped in the discussions with our technical teams and being able to understand what is the impact to our defence customer as well. That's interesting. Um, so you, you've you've kind of looked, you've been in both sides. So you're now um, sort of doing the project management side of it, but you've also sort of been on the ground doing the actual work that the the scientists are doing um, on an everyday basis. Yeah, it was a really good opportunity. Um, and I guess I've now moved into a, a entirely different um, division and a different role. Um, but that very much more is thinking about kind of the more exploitation and customer focus, which is a really cool challenge and entirely different from where I thought I'd end up at the beginning of my. 
career. Uh, let's talk a little bit about things that you do which are kind of in work but kind of extracurricular to your main job. Um, there are a number of uh, employee networks at DSTL, um, one of which you're involved with is called PRISM. Could you talk a little bit about that? Tell us what PRISM is and, and what your involvement is. Yeah, so I've it's sometimes been referred to for fact, but I have well, far too many extracurricular activities of which PRISM takes <laughs> up a lot of my time and is also my, my passion. Um, and I was jokingly saying I should, well, maybe rebrand my job title to Shouty Queer Man uh, because of the amount of times I, <laughs> I talk about it and get people on board with it. But actually it's really cool because DSJL is a great organisation where people are actually genuinely interested and, and ask me questions all the time about it. And that's almost why I want to use it to kind of stimulate those discussions and have us talking about inclusion and diversity across the whole organisation, whether it's for the kind of... Well, and, and PRISM specifically is for sexual orientation and gender identity, which we use rather than LGBT star um, purely because the acronym itself is confusing and excludes a huge tranche of different people which we actually serve, which is why we go for the slightly more wordy um, definition. Um, and when I joined, um, so I started um, about, well, I think October 2018 and in a co-lead role in the network, and I realised that although I've been completely comfortable in my whole time that I've been here, um, it was almost we weren't, we knew we were doing really well, but we weren't talking about it. And we weren't being visible. And visibility had dropped to kind of, uh, to, there were people who were visible, but not across the organisation. So actually, it's kind of small things of giving out rainbow lanyards. And also we have ally pins. So we've relaunched our ally scheme recently. And we're looking for more um, staff across DSGL to get involved in that. Um, to just kind of consider their actions and consider what they could do to support the community here, um, whether that's both in a kind of sexual orientation, gender identity or anything else. And it's kind of more, I don't want to use the term, so non-binary gender is one of our key targets this year. So this is flagged up in our Stonewall Workplace Equality Index. So we participate in kind of the national scheme, I think it's 500 organisations. Oh, yeah. yeah which we do every year in PRISM leading our submission for that, it gives us a chance to see how we're we doing, how do we compare to other organisations. And one of the things which flagged was on the topic of non-binary gender. So those are people who either identify as both male and female or as neither or anything in between. Um, and there's a lot that we could do as an organisation um, to, to facilitate them working for us and, and to make them feel comfortable here. And I don't, it's never a kind of direct exclusion, it's just a few things which we can do uh, one of the things which i'm pushing a lot is around personal pronouns so i led the one of my other extracurricular activities was the steps conference so for new starters joining the organization which you run on an annual basis and i used it as a slight experiment as my inner scientist um, escaped to um, get people to, to declare their personal pronouns so that's um, commonly he him she her they them on their name badges which is usually used just as a way to, because it's not always obvious what someone's gender is, um, and having the pronouns there means there's no chance of misgendering. It also makes people who are um, not kind of, well, it's not only just non-binary, but anyone can then, they know the pronouns. And, and it's amazing when you ask someone, but how often do you refer to someone as um, their pronoun? And they go, oh yeah, I do that all the time. Um, and you don't realise until you just think about it for a second. And what, what, what data did you get from that uh, exercise? Did you, did you find people were using, you know, they, them or, you know, he, her? There are a lot of people who did engage with it. There were also a number of people who 
didn't necessarily understand it, but it was really useful to have a kind of pilot study because now I've got all of that feedback, which I need to compile and consider what kind of education can we do across the organisation to, to let people know about that. Um, and it's informing kind of a strategy where I'm looking at what steps do we need to take to ensure that uh, non-binary people um, are actually included in every part of the organisation. And that's kind of ongoing this year. From, from my point of view, I think uh, PRISM is a, is a fantastic um, initiative and certainly in my experience, it's one of the most visible um, networks, inclusion networks I've ever seen in any organisation I've ever worked in. Um, because in a lot of places I've worked in the past, it's kind of, you know, you don't bring that to work, it's not important when it actually obviously is. And it's just, I think it's really cool to, for it to be so visible. You know, you see people walking around with the, sorry, the rainbow lanyards or the ally pin badges. And I just think um, it's, it's a great initiative and I just think, you know, you should be applauded for, for what you're doing, really. Just moving away from work entirely now, let's talk about you as a, as a person. Um, what does Rory do for kicks? What do you do outside of, outside of work? I know that you t we've spoken briefly in the past. Obviously, people listening to this won't know this. But um, you told me that you used to want to be a town planner. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and why you were so <laughs> involved in wanting to be a town planner? <laughs> I can't even remember where it went from. I think I did a work placement in a, in, um, a borough council in Dorset when I was in um, probably year 10. Um, and I don't know why I decided that. And I think it was probably the interaction of like people and, and the town and how important that is. And that was probably what kind of flagged me into being interested in that side. Um, and also probably playing things like... Um, Sim City and, oh, yeah. and all of the kind of simulator games probably made me think like I'd be really good at this. Yes, I mean I suppose it, you could say in one way that they're kind of disparate um, topics of interest, but in actual fact they're quite sort of connected in in a way. Um, the only reason I remember you saying that you wanted to be a town planner is because I'm obsessed with maps. I, I, I've got this kind of weird fascination with maps, so it just kind of really struck a chord with me. So I, I can totally see why or how somebody would be interested in you know how the towns kind of grow and you know, um, from that very small sort of settlements into these huge cities, so. Um, yeah, because actually my, um, I always joke, because my partner also works at DSTL, and I always say um, to him that um, when he was younger, I don't think he actually read books, he just read an atlas, because I'll be like, where's that place? And he'll be like, it's here, and I'm like, wow, oh my God. <laughs> so maybe he should have been in town planner and not me. <laughs> um, and, and what else, what other things are you interested in? What other good um, things? So I'd, yeah, in addition to my kind of extracurricular, well, many extracurriculars at work, I also have a kind of revolving churn of hobbies as well. Um, but I was a member last year of an inclusive rugby team in Southampton. Um, so that was primarily gay men. There were a few um, straight men on the team as well, um, which um, was actually really cool because it was interesting. I hadn't been in that environment before, never thought I'd join a sports team at all. Um, and it was, and especially because it's one working towards considering the fact that they're still not necessarily um, that uh, queer people feel included in, in sports teams, but it's actually doing a lot of progress. So there's a huge number of local teams around, rugby teams around the area who really want to play the team. Um, and actually this next year will be the first year that they play in uh, kind of more, well, the, the other leagues that aren't strictly for um, gay teams. Okay. Um, so I've been doing that for a while. Also considering joining Roller Derby next year, if I can find the time. Um, roller Derby? Is that with the rollerblades and you go around in a and circle? You, yeah, and then try and kind of push people off the court. Um, although I'm told I'm slightly insane for considering it. And 
<laughs> I like an aggressive sport, that's what I realised. Well, if you're into rugby, I mean, you could take your skills in rugby to just kind of like barge people out of the way and maybe just own the, own the pitch, as it yeah. were. <laughs> but I'm quite, I'm quite considerably smaller than a lot of people playing rugby. I've, I've frequently got lifted off of a pitch, so like my key skill was running very fast um, and not so much being able to actually knock people over. My last active hobby is I'm part of um, Salisbury Speakers, which is part of a Toastmasters organisation. Um, it was actually established um, by a member of DSTL staff a couple of years ago, and a lot of DSTL staff also um, join in with the um, kind of um, activity. And there's also a, um, well, it's called a Community of Practice for Effective Communication, which has been established, and that's actually, well, I think it's relaunching at the moment, um, and that's providing DSTL staff in the workplace with the things which we do at Salisbury Speakers. Um, if anyone is interested, it runs on a weekly basis, well, no, bi-weekly, but every two weeks in um, Salisbury at the Pheasant Inn on a Monday. Um, but that's been really good for kind of building confidence, knowing how to speak, because there's, it, it runs, well, I kind of describe it as like a, a friendly cult, which empowers the world through public speaking. <laughs> Because it's a very set way of doing it and you have a kind of list of, of, and you can adapt it to what you want to do about things you want to talk about and you can do prepared speeches or there's off-the-cuff speaking. Um, but in, I've been a member for about a year and a half now and I was saying actually when, because I also did a BBC interview a few, um, well, months ago now um, and also this podcast and I said, I would never have done this a year and a half ago. I'd never have the confidence to do it. And um, it's ended up extending into both being really good in a professional context and also a personal context because I'm not really that worried about speaking in public anymore. You mentioned something there that I wanted to speak to you about very briefly. Um, you were featured on a BBC News video that, uh, that kind of went semi-viral on the BBC News website where it was a, a look behind the scenes at Parton Down. Um, and you were the kind of the main sort of I almost said protagonist then, but <laughs> you were the main kind of face of, of DSTL uh, speaking to the defence correspondent who was here, Frank Gardner. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and how you got involved with that? Yes, I was kind of joking about the fact that I've, I'm the face and now I can be the voice as well. Just <laughs> be on every medium at DSTL You are Parton Down. <laughs> Mr. Parton Down. Down. Oh no, it's called Mr. Prison the other day. I feel like I had many nicknames. Um, but yeah, so it was it was really last minute request. So um, I heard about it the day before and, and got given kind of a few briefings over what I was expected to do, what I wanted to do. Um, and I also kind of just went, well, yeah, I might as well do something different. Um, and knew that he was coming in. And because and I'm interested in that, like communicating how we work to people and I went, this is a really good opportunity to do it um, and share that on a wider basis because so many people see kind of the... The, the perimeter fence and, and just go like, oh, put and down. And I was like, well, actually, if we can like, if we have the opportunity to bring that down a bit and, and be able to say, well, it is kind of like, I wouldn't say it's a completely normal place to work, but it's it's a business place. We deliver things for customers. It's just that we kind of, there is an air around it, which people always, um, because I guess historically we couldn't share things and it feels like we're becoming a bit more open about sharing what we can do and talking about it. Well, Rory, um, it's been fascinating speaking to you. I could probably sit here and speak to you for another hour, but unfortunately we haven't got that amount of time. Um, so we'll end it there, but I just want to say thank you for your time. And uh, yeah, good luck with everything you're doing. I've been your host, Tom. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the DSTL podcast. If you'd like to know more about DSTL, you can find us online at gov.uk forward slash DSTL or on social at DSTL mod. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.